at the Center for Education Research and Innovation, we're in the habit of asking questions that matter and looking for answers that impact. But how do you do that? How does a researcher get to that point? What we do know is that researchers are united in their curiosity. What we don't know is the stories behind the curiosity. Let's dive in. Welcome everyone to another episode of the Curiosity Habit and today I have a great pleasure to have with me Dr. Kevin Eva. Welcome Kevin to our podcast. Thanks so much Sarah, I look forward to it. Thank you. So Kevin, just to give you an idea, is an Associate Director and Senior Scientist at the Center for Health Education Scholarship, CHESS at UBC, and the Editor-in-Chief for the Journal Medical Education. And we're here, we're here to just have a little peek into his story behind of what makes him come, become a researcher in this community. So let's just start from the beginning. And I usually ask people to give me an idea of who was the person growing up? What, what did the environment growing up look like for you in this case, Kevin? All the way back to childhood, you mean? <laughs> um, I guess the, the dominant thing that comes from mind, to mind for me is um, uh, pretty standard Canadian childhood, uh, uh, you know, working class parents and, and uh, uh, he spent a lot of time in in Boy Scouts, I guess, uh, early on. Uh, but but you know, had had fairly eclectic interests. Um, uh, you know, played sports. Uh, uh, you know, Scouts enabled the opportunity to pursue a, a variety of of uh, possible uh, interests. You know, with the the badge system and and uh, getting to to you know, think a little bit about music, a little bit about camping, a little bit about, you know, uh, pretty much anything that you could name at the time. So um, I just grew up as as a kid in Southern Ontario who who was pretty typical environment, I think. Okay. Where in, in Southwest Ontario? Uh, well, so I was born in Montreal, but I grew up in okay. a town called Newmarket, just north of Toronto. Oh, okay, okay. And then you moved to Hamilton? Was, is that the route, the road? Mm -hmm. Moved to Hamilton when I started my bachelor's and then wound up spending 18 years there uh, by the time I went to grad school and my first faculty appointment was there. So, uh, yeah, at, at some point uh, in that stay, I realized I had to start telling people I was from Hamilton because I lived there longer than I've lived anywhere else. Yeah, I, I had the same idea that you probably were from Hamilton. It's interesting to know that you actually were born in, in Montreal. <laughs> okay, so then you moved to uh, Newmark, Newmark, you said? Newmarket, yeah. Because yeah, of back, the in, uh, back in the late 70s, when all the uh, political tensions were taking place in Quebec, we were one of the families who left for fear of, of um, you know, some of the, the turmoil that was going on there. So uh, my dad worked for Canadian National Railways and, and got transferred to uh, their, their Toronto yard. Mm -hmm. Okay. And throughout those years growing up and then the time in Hamilton, what has been the thread uh, that is common in terms of your curiosities? Uh, the thread that's common, um, probably just that my curiosity is somewhat uh, linked to ADHD. <laughs> I, I, I say that in jest, don't mean to, to take the condition lightly, but um, I, I tend to find curiosity in a lot of different 
places and uh, uh, if anything, have to to work to overcome that you know, been there, done that feeling. Uh, mm -hmm. When you get a little bit of uh, a flavor of something, it, it can feel like it's time to move on to the next thing. Um, so, so whether I'm thinking about the you know those uh, Boy Scout years or or even my my work as a as a medical education researcher, um, one of the things that I value in this field is the opportunity to to play with a lot of different ideas and different people and and uh, you know, get get some some variety you know, built into to one's uh, activities. So in, in addition to the being on the, on the Boy Scouts, uh, is, was there anything else that your parents did to kind of infuse that sense of allowing you to find your own curiosities? Uh, I think in that regard, it was mostly you know, just how enabling uh, they were, you know, um, they uh, were both leaders or, or committee members in the in the scouting organization, um, but you know, after uh, they, they both coached swimming, and so so um, you got to spend a lot of time uh, every summer uh, doing that. Uh, you know, my dad spent uh, hours and hours in volunteer work, and so he would take me along to. Uh, to you know, get those experiences, and uh, you know, I, otherwise, if I if I said I wanted to switch from baseball to soccer, even though they were baseball players themselves, not soccer players, they they allowed me to make that mistake because yeah. it turns out I, I was much better at and enjoyed baseball a lot more than I did soccer. So, uh, <laughs> but 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 you know, they, they I think enabling the word just in the sense that you know they they gave me the opportunities that I. I asked for for the most part. Yeah, I, I was reflecting about this idea of who influenced your curiosities. And at, you usually start with the parents because that's kind of the first point in your life. But I'm curious about your children and how much impact your children have had in your views about the skill to be curious and what have you learned from them? Yeah, so I uh have obviously learned a ton from them uh they are 20 and 17 now so uh they're they're much more cognizant of teaching me things now than they were when they were uh, younger um uh i guess what comes to mind when you ask that is uh, again just wanting to to make sure that that they have the space to to play to to not um, you, the, the learning is as as you know, many parents have found nowadays um, how, that there's dangers and things being overly programmed uh, and the, and they have so much more opportunity now than than we had uh, or at least that I had when I was growing up in terms of uh, anything they could possibly imagine there's a a club or a or a team or a group that, that they could join. Uh, and, and so uh, my son in particular was a lot like me in that he liked to do a lot of different things and try them on and then move on to the next thing. Um, uh, and and but with both him and, and our daughter, we we discovered that uh, when when we get caught up you know, in trying to, to enable or lead them to the next thing, then, then that's when, you know, the pushback comes and they just need, need some uh, time to, to 
rest. Right. And what about you? Have you found that you got into things that you never thought about getting into because of them? Uh, I'm not. Definitely uh, became a circus uh, fan uh, because of oh, that. Really? My, my kids both went through uh, circus and that's the thing that my son in particular has stuck with the longest term. He's been doing it uh, now for uh, 12 years. Uh-huh. Yeah, we're, we're experimenting with, um, with you know, building things. He's an engineer now and so he's you know, bringing you know, some some cool ideas about you know, different uh, different things that he's working on, and mm-hmm. uh, yeah, yeah. No, I, I I guess I'm one who just doesn't sit still very well, and so uh, I'm, I'm not sure how much of it was was you know, driven by them, and how much of it is is just you know feeling like uh, I, I want to be on the move one way or another. Right, right. That's fascinating. So let's talk about you as a researcher. Um, how has that curiosity evolved when you when you move into medical education? Like, first of all, what brought you into this community and this area? Because you, you were trained in a different discipline, right? Uh, yeah. Um, what brought me here is probably the same as everybody else in the sense of being serendipity. Uh, There are not many people who uh, deliberately went into medical education because not many people know of it as a field. Um, But even though my route feels a bit uh, circuitous, in many ways it's more direct than than many others have had. Um, I was actually studying biology and psychology uh, uh, generally as an undergraduate student, um, was, was... leaning towards a career in genetics Um, and then just by chance in my last year if not my last term of my bachelor's degree um, i took a course called psychological measurement and the prof who typically taught the course was a psychophysicist uh, who happened to be on sabbatical that year and the person who replaced him uh, was jeff norman uh, who taught the course completely differently than the other prof would have. You know, obviously used a lot of examples from medical education. Mm-hmm. And it just seemed like a really cool topic. Uh, I enjoyed the course. Um, uh, Jeff promised that there were job opportunities uh, for, for people. Um, and so I started exploring graduate work in that area. And when I thought I had settled on a program in medical education, I, I went to his office just to get his opinion. Um, again, I can remember my heart beating because it was not the sort of thing that one is used to doing when you're an undergraduate uh, student. Right. You walk into a professor's office for career advice. Um, but it was him who said, if you want to be in this field, you should get a PhD in cognitive psychology specifically. Uh, and the guy to do that with is Lee Brooks. And so... Mm. Uh, you know, he sent me across campus. Lee was at McMaster as well as I was, and and uh, by, by you know, good fortune was willing to take me on. Oh wow! I didn't know that whole story. So, what was about that course? You said he taught it very differently from the other prof. But was there a particular memory that you have that really made you? Oh, this is an interesting field. Oh, uh, well, I think it was 
the combination of you know, liking some of the mathematical problems that we were talking about in the sense of trying to understand uh, what reliability means and um, that combined with the skepticism that um, thinking about measurement entails in the sense of you know, just because somebody has uh, quoted a number or, or quoted a difference between different groups um, or said a certain you know, percentage of people feel uh, a certain way. Mm -hmm. um, there are a lot of claims out there that are based on you know, pseudoscience at best. Um, uh, and, and so sort of trying to learn how to think about when should you trust data um, was very appealing to me. Um, and then again, just the applied nature of, of the problems I found very appealing too. You know, to the, the applied nature of the problems was very appealing to me too, in the sense of uh, you know feeling like you're working on something that actually could have an impact, um, uh, as opposed to in some of the psychology labs that I was uh, doing other work with. You know, it, it was hard to get really excited about you know 300 milliseconds or if not 30 milliseconds worth of difference yeah. between two experimental conditions and, and yeah. feeling like it was uh, practically relevant. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. I can totally understand the pragmatic part of that. So Geoff said that you needed to become a cognitive psychologist in order to be in this field. And then you come into this field that is very diverse with people everywhere. Yeah. So I'm curious to know about what expectations did you have about being a scientist that differ from reality? That when you came to the community, you realized, ah, that's a little bit different. Yeah, well, and you have to remember that I'm, I'm old enough that it was very different uh, 25 years ago when that, when that conversation took place than it is now. Um, it really has been something that I've been privileged to witness, is that, that broadening of interest. Um, I think Jeff's perspective was partly because cognitive psychology had influenced his career so much. Uh, but, but I think it's fair to say that you know, back in those earlier days, cognitive psychology was the dominant discipline you know, outside of the, the biomedical uh, personnel who, who were uh, obviously central to it. Um, and so uh, over those two and a half decades, as I've, had the opportunity to, to learn from and, and witness the you know, incorporation of uh, you know, anthropologists and kinesiologists and uh, you know, every ologist that you can possibly think of. Um, that, that to me, again, has been, been part of the fun is, is getting to, to you know, appreciate that you know, qualitative data has its place, quantitative data has its place. There are uh, parallel errors that people make on both sides of that you know, overly simplistic uh, balance. Um, and, and you're really just coming to, I guess, better appreciate that it's good information that we need to, to drive our, our decision-making um, as opposed to the, the very narrow view of evidence that, that the biomedical world and, and in different ways, the, the psychology world that I grew up on uh, paid attention to yeah so in those years of meeting people from different disciplines and kind of learning different ways of doing research as well 
what and, and as you said before, careers are never linear. It's always by chance that we tap on different opportunities. And I was wondering what would be an opportunity that you took that became a defining moment in your career and you were probably not expecting. Um, there have been so many. Uh, one that comes to mind, I guess, because it was a particular moment um, uh, is that when I started on faculty at McMaster, so after I finished cognitive psychology, um, the, the job that was most appealing to me was in the clinical epidemiology department uh, at Mac. And so I, I changed departments again. And in taking on that role, I joined the uh, assessment committee. And that was one of the educational contributions that I could make uh, in, a, in a medical program, uh, you know, despite not having clinical training. And a few years into that experience, uh, the, uh, the chair of the admissions office came to our assessment committee and said, uh, we are uh, uh, struggling a bit to know how to make decisions on who to let into the program. Mm -hmm. uh, you guys have all the measurement expertise and we're so busy just mounting the process, we don't really have time to think about it. Uh, so, so the opportunity came by, you know, just agreeing to sit down with a you know, handful of people uh, to to brainstorm and and bash ideas around, right. and it was a good example of of the power of you know just being open to uh, free flowing conversations, not really knowing where they're going to go, uh, and also being um, attentive to all the different. Uh, you know, perspectives in the room because this group wound up being uh, uh, Jeff as a as a wizened uh, professor in medical education knew the field very well um, Harold Ryder who who chaired the assessment committee um, and and Jack Rosenfeld who uh, was the chair of our OSCE committee at the time and and we just got discussing with the admissions group uh, options and. Somebody, I don't even know who said, well, in the clinical realm, you know, where we're, when we're time limited, but we're trying to get more rigorous data, uh, we, we run OSCEs. Uh, could we do an admissions OSCE? And in truth, every single one of us in the room just laughed because there's no way we could ever possibly pull that off, right? It's just, it's just a massive undertaking for the number of students who had to come through. Right. And and it was after the meeting broke up that uh, Jack Rosenfeld, uh, who is the OSCE chair, sent an email back to the group and said, I was just thinking on my way back to my office. We currently use three person hours for every admissions interview we run. Mm -hmm. In a two hour OSCE, it takes two person hours to do to you know, gather more data. Mm -hmm. and, and that alone, again, was just one of those moments of, um, maybe there is something there. Maybe we, we should just try it and see where it leads. Uh, and, and so we, we spoke with you know, some key people in the administration and they were um, in typical McMaster style, very supportive of innovation and, and you know, experimentation for the sake of seeing where it leads. And, and so again, just 
I, I thought of that because it was it was that moment where you know, we're all so busy all the time that sometimes it feels like a, a, a burden to, to take a meeting that doesn't have a clear direct link to to something you're trying to get finished. Um, but but had I not just been part of that meeting would have been a massive opportunity lost. Right. And that meeting influence also kind of the one of the areas that you are interested. Am I right? Well, so that that meeting led to a decade worth of research into trying to develop and and understand uh, what a NOSCI could look like or could do uh, for admissions. Mm -hmm. uh, but more generally, it, it led me down a path of trying to better understand what are we doing when um, we pass judgment on on any observation and any uh, performance or or uh, experience that, that we get the, the opportunity to observe. And so it you know fed into a, another decade worth of research uh, on what I call radar cognition, trying to understand uh, the, the what's going on in the heads of of um, uh, people who are making judgments about other people's performances. And, and again, that has built on uh, the, the fundamental work I did in grad school, trying to understand decision-making as a clinician and diagnostic reasoning. Uh, and so I guess uh, that's a long way of saying that uh, the, the, the value of the uh, diversity of experience that, that I was describing as value as very much appreciating uh, is you never really know where connections are going to be formed and, and where your work in one area might actually you know, open up boxes that you didn't imagine having the key for in other areas. Yeah. Well, I love that story because it shows the, the power of just one moment, being part of a group and then how it became such a big research program. Thank you for sharing that. I was also curious about that you are, you've been doing this research for a long time, but you're also the editor-in-chief of medical education. How does that role factor in your career and what has been kind of the main benefits from being part of that? Yeah, I've also been doing that for a long time now too. So thanks for reminding me again <laughs> about just how long it's been. Uh -huh. um, no, no, I'm always joking. Um, it is... It has had such an impact on on my career, primarily in the sense that, again, it has forced me to to read way wider than I ever would have if you're know, just left to my own devices. You know, the the, the fact that um, I, I can't be expert in everything, but but have to read everything that comes into the journal, and as a result, also get the opportunity to to learn from the perspectives of those who are more expert in those areas. Um, what it did for me in part was just developing a much deeper understanding of uh, where things can go sideways in the sense of um, I can remember spending you know, countless hours at, at various conferences and other formats where people were on stage talking about you know all the all the flaws that were plaguing medical education as a research field mm -hmm. and and hearing them and and thinking that I understood them, but not really understanding them until I got to see them in action. You know, when when you get to see the papers that that don't make it into publication, um, what it what it enabled or what it forced was was finding my own 
language, my own appreciation for, for how could I express to the authors uh, things that, that led to a lower publication priority at the journal, which why I'm saying that influenced my, my main job is that it uh, made things much more possible for me to try to, you know, advise newcomers to the field. You know, the, the, the you know, people who come into your office because they're interested in medical education, but they don't really know where to begin. They have a kernel of an idea. Uh, they, they, they need some support developing it into something. And, and you know, being able to, to hopefully uh, you know, steer them away from some of the most common traps has, has I think, gone a long way to enabling me to do my, my real job better. Mm-hmm. So is, is there a particular question that you now ask those newcomers based on what you what you have learned from being an editor? I'm curious just to see what how you handle that conversation. Well, so uh, probably ask most people in those circumstances now is you know, what is your goal? Uh, because it's a very different conversation if they are interested in uh, gathering some data to help them make a decision about you know, which you should they continue to to run this workshop or, or should they should they uh, implement something in in the assessment protocols in in our particular medical school versus if their goal is to say something meaningful to the international uh, uh, education scholarship community right it, if if what you're hoping to do is disseminate whatever you've learned to a group of people who work outside of your context, then we need to make sure that we're collecting data that are going to be meaningful beyond that context in the sense of um, helping them to think differently about whatever the, the problem happens to be. Um, and so, yeah, the, the, the key question for me is, is always first and foremost trying to figure out what do they want to accomplish so that I can try to, to you know, give advice that will lead them to the end that they're trying to achieve rather than assuming that, that their goals are necessarily mine. Mm-hmm. That reminds me that that's one of the key features of a good paper, that your goal must be very clear. Well, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, and again, you sort of ties into this question you're asking about the editorial role versus my role as a scientist. You know, the, uh, the dominant reason that the papers are, are rejected uh, unfortunately often uh, at medical education as well as some other journals in our field is that they're written in a way that makes them for the context in which the the author works mm-hmm. um, and I don't in any way in saying that mean to imply that they have the data the results have to be generalizable or they have to be transferable but the lessons the messages the 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 phenomenon uh, that, that's you know, being considered should be written up in a way and, and the project should be run in a way that's going to be important, relevant, uh, timely for people in other places if you expect them to read it. Yeah, yeah, great. So we talked about Kevin growing up and we talked about Kevin as a researcher. I went to end uh, the interview. We have a few more minutes with, with what I call the small things in life. So Kevin now. <laughs> my new question is, what is the most enjoyable part of the day for you? Of my work day? Yeah, of your day. Um, you know, honestly, I, 
I don't think there is any one part um, being consistent with what I said earlier. Um, not many days are alike for me. Um, you know, they even you know, just thinking about you know, being in the city. There, are, you know, some days I I uh, am in my department at one hospital. There are other days I'm in my office at Chas. There are other days I I go to the College of Physicians and Surgeons of BC to mm-hmm. to do some work with them. Um, uh, and you know, I guess even within the time I spend in my center, uh, you know, some days are committee heavy, some days are data analysis, some days are are consulting uh, students or, or other colleagues, and and it's that feeling of very little routine that that I I like the most. So there's not there's not sort of one moment. Yeah. Um, there it's, it's it's the energy that comes from you know, trying to stay on your toes. Yeah, kind of the variety that you add to your week, basically. Yeah, yeah, very much so. And it can be very frustrating when you feel like everything is you know, constantly a lot of uh, effort to keep things organized. But uh, at the same time, that I, I, I think I would lose interest very quickly if I was just doing the same thing over and over again. Right, that's great. So... Or of all the things you do, because I can I imagine that also you have many more activities that you do outside work. But will be one activity that give you outside work that gives you a lot of joy, but maybe only few people know about it. Uh, again, I'll, I guess yeah, I have to. Yeah, well, no, <laughs> yeah. So, so I I, I enjoy. It. Sports. I play racquetball. Uh, I I try to keep up uh, running and and uh, triathlon. Although that's fallen off a little bit during the pandemic. Um, I I very much like woodworking. So I, I you know, build furniture. Um, and for the past uh, two years, my my partner and I have been building a, a cabin that we purchased some land. Um, 90 minutes east of here, a place called Harrison River. And so we've been uh, you know, going through the process of, of building a house. Um, oh, which, on uh, your own? With some considerable help. Uh, but everything, <laughs> everything we can do on our own, we're doing on our own. Uh, yeah, but, but we, we have been very fortunate where we're building that, that our neighbors have uh, you know, some, some big machines that have come in very <laughs> handy every now and then. Well, it's great that the two of you share the same interests, I guess. Yeah, we've always sort of done projects together like that. And um, again, partly thinking about the kids getting older, it was uh, a moment of reflection on what is left when they're out of the house. What are, what are we going to do to you know, keep ourselves uh, engaged and, and right. you know, working on things uh, uh, as a couple? So mm-hmm. um there were probably cheaper hobbies we could have come up with, but it's, <laughs> <laughs> it's been fun so far. Oh, that's good. Uh, you probably should talk to Jerry Gormley from Ireland. He also yeah, yeah. does good working. <laughs> I learned that. I know. Yes, I know. I've, I've spent quite a bit of time with Jerry. That's nice. So my final question, and I'm going to pick on your initial uh, comment about that you grew up playing sports and doing so many things. So if you had the opportunity to choose one athlete that you admire to play a single game, who would you choose? One athlete 
play a single to be, game. To be. So, so again, this there's a real consistency to this conversation that I didn't really <laughs> anticipate before it started. But uh, the only athlete whose jersey I own is Bo Jackson. Okay. Uh, and he, he just his athletic talents were unbelievable. But the fact that they were at such a high level across multiple sports, uh, I, I was just uh, infatuated with when I was growing up. Well, I think we found your profile in this conversation. <laughs> <laughs> Variability, that's a good word. Okay, Kevin, it was really a pleasure chatting with you. I appreciate you taking the time to be with us. Thank you so much. No, thank you. And thanks for, for telling these stories. It's been uh, wonderful to be able to listen to. Thank you very much. And thank you everyone for listening and we'll tune in in the next episode. This has been The Curiosity Habit. This podcast is hosted by Syra Cristancho and produced by Monica Molinero. You can find all our episodes on podcast apps like Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever else you listen to podcasts. Thanks for listening.